Locale. Local. Shock. Local. Cambiamento. Tapir. Gergelecta. Sacula Ijaia. Food. Change. Welcome to the Slow Food Youth Network Podcast. Hello everyone and welcome back to the Swin Podcast. I'm Valentina Gritti, I'm your host and the Global Community and Project Manager of the Slow Food Youth Network. Today it's a super special episode because I am live recording the Swin Podcast at Terra Madre. And I'm co-hosting this episode with Dan Saladino, producer at the BBC Radio for the Food Program and author of the book Eating to Extinction. Absolutely right and wonderful to be back in Terra Madre after su- such a long gap. And uh, here we are uh, in this part of Turin, surrounded by thousands of people, uh, recording this podcast in a golden-coloured container. Uh, and yeah, how wonderful. So I hope uh, people are listening in and enjoying and uh, we're about to tell them some fascinating stories from Terra Madre. Yeah, and then outside it's really raining, so we're, we're happy to be inside this golden container. We've had two, yeah, <laughs> two, two glorious sunny days and then the rain came today. And so people have been huddling inside the, uh, the talks and the conferences and the, the places to go meet the food producers. So it's more intimate and cozy today mm-hmm. because of the rain. And, um, and today I'm here with two special guests. So we have Nora Husari uh, from Finland and Ariana Labazin from Italy. And uh, Nora uh, works for Snow Change Cooperative in Finland towards the preservation and enhancement of biodiversity, cultural heritage and regenerative food production with a focus on small-scale fisheries. So now you're, you're going to tell us more about what, uh, what you do exactly. And uh, she finds that the key solutions to the increasing environmental crisis lie at the local level with indigenous and local communities. And then uh, we have Arena Lavazin, who recently graduated in law and sustainable development, and she seeks to do her part also to tackle the, the climate crisis. And you have a bit more of a, a global perspective because you did an interse- internship at the UNF Triple uh, C, and so you're gonna also share with us what. Uh, Um, yeah, what is the global perspective on the climate crisis? I know also that you really like cooking, so you like food in all its sense. And uh, whenever you have some time, you bake cakes. <laughs> Did you bring some? Uh, I think there is plenty around here today. <laughs> <laughs> so today I left it at home. Next time. And uh, yeah, so maybe we can start with a bit of uh, background. Uh, question to get to know a bit more about you. Yes, uh, so first of all, thank you so much uh, to both of you for having us here. I'm very happy, this is my hometown. I was grown up here, born here, so it's very special for me today being here and uh, every time there is Terra Madre, it's such a joy. Uh, as Valentina said, I'm a recent graduate uh, in law and sustainable, sustainable development, trying to specialize and learn more day by day on the climate crisis and this is the Uh, the part where I would like to, to develop my own career also. So uh, very happy to be here today. Yeah. Um, so very nice to be here from my side too. This is my first time in, in Turin and in, in Terra Madre. Um, it's been really inspiring to, to see that there are so many people who share the same struggles, but also are responding to the struggles in their own ways, in their local communities and, and their local environments. So it's, um, 
And um, yeah, so maybe to kick off, I would like to, to start with you, Nora, and uh, to ask you uh, what is your experience really on the grassroots level uh, on how uh, the climate crisis is affecting local communities and especially uh, small scale uh, fishermen? Yeah, um, so I'm from Finland, like you said, um, where we have or we where we used to have uh, long winters, cold winters with a lot of snow. And my organization, Snow Change, um, is, is partly an NGO, but partly a snow, uh, fishing cooperative. So we have our own um, fishing crew, um, which practices traditional, it's a very special winter fishery on Lake Purovesi. Um, so it's uh, just as a brief introduction, it's like a special fishery that takes place on the ice where you put um, a big net under the ice with a special technique and you spread it out and then then you, when you pull it, and if it's successful, then, then you catch the fish. Um, so the, our fishers, we have a young fishing team of, um, there's a fisherwoman, 26 years old, and a fisherman, 32. Um, so they, together with the, the elders who they have been learning from, have been experiencing the impacts of climate change in their, like, their everyday fishery. So the ice is no longer coming or Yeah, so I mean there is still ice, but um there's a lot less ice. So um the seining season started in early November that it lasted for five or six months, like back in the sixties. But now it lasts from one month to three months. So it's like a drastic decrease. And when when we talk about the decrease of ice that also means like that the, the whole tradition is threatened so we don't only talk about fishing but we talk about an entire culture a deep connection to nature an entire set of knowledge that is based on all that and it's not just the ice but also um, the weather and how the fish are reacting to that has changed so like mm, So when you're a, a fisherman, you need to know where the fish are, um, where to go fishing. And it's based on like certain um, like hints from the environment. So for example, from where is the wind blowing? How much sunlight is there? Um, what is the face of the moon? And then you choose where you, where you go out of the hundreds of places on the ice. It sounds really intriguing, this idea of nets and ice. Can you just describe how, how it's done and also what what species of fish are there? Yeah, so it's done so that that you make two holes uh, on the ice, like um, quite spread out from each other. And then you, um, in a way, you spread like ropes from one end to the other. And then um, to the ropes, you um, connect the net and then with the ropes you you pull the net to the other how do you do that without anyone having to go into the icy water um there's there are these um we call them swimmers so they there are those that like are really old-fashioned that don't use any battery or anything but then there's those that like kind of like have a, a tiny engine that that then go under the, the ice and the fish is called vendis in english Coragonus albula in in Latin. Um, it's a it's a tiny uh, salmon related fish. So it's a it's a very ancient technique of fishing. 
very traditional technique. It dates back to uh, at least 1300s, because from there are the first written records, but um, it might be even even older. On that on that specific lake, I mean, uh, the Seine itself um, is like thousand thousands of years old. Um, the Seine fishery. And how important is it as a f source of food, but also a source of employment and income? Um, well, at least now when when the the seining season is shorter, then that of course affects like um, an, an indirect impact of climate change. It affects the um, the income of the fishermen because the season is so much shorter. Um, and yeah, and of course regarding food security too. If there's a sh shorter season to fish, and of course you can fish on open water too, but then when there's uh, a period between the summer fishery and the winter fishery that we call rosputa in Finnish. And it's a season when, when you don't have enough ice cover, but you also don't have open water. So when that period is longer, you cannot fish. And then, of course, there is then, it's a, a food security question too. So the whole rhythms really of, of nature, but also of the way people interact with the, the lake and the fish is changing. Yes, definitely. And Ariana, based on your experience at the UNFCCC, uh, how are organizations dealing with climate change? So first of all, UNFCCC stands for United Nations Framework Convention for Climate Change. So it was first of all a treaty, which was uh, signed by members of the United Nations in 1992. Uh, so it's a treaty. So first of all, the way in which international organization deals with this big problem is by writing down agreements, writing down treaties, writing down laws. Um, so in 1992, they started with this agreement, which was super broad uh, because it stated, OK, there is a problem, there is climate change, but it didn't really say much more. Uh, nation agreed that there was something that had to be done, but that was it. Then, some years later, was another um, agreement, which was the Kyoto Protocol in 1997, uh, which it looks, I was born in 1997, so it's like, it's 25 years ago. Still, it was late at that time. Uh, and the Kyoto Protocol, again, was um, very important. It was a little bit more broad. It had more commitments. But the, the things that I always want to remind is that um, there were some commitments to put in place and there was uh, a period to do that that stemmed from 2005 to 2012. In that time, went quite well, but then they had to do more commitment between 2012 and 2020. However, this uh, second commitment period, how is it called, uh, was ratified, was signed in 2020. So on the day that this commitment period should have finished, so in the years that they had to do something, actually it tendered into force, so it actually was it was a failure. Then it came with the Paris Agreement in 2015 in, uh, at COP21, uh, um, and this is another, it's let's say a landmark uh, in, in the scenario of international organization and in the way in which these international organizations try to deal with climate change, because as we all know, uh, for the first time it set some binding targets for, uh, for nations. Some things, so it basically says, uh, that there are some legally binding targets, meaning that states who ratified these agreements uh, are bind by law to do something. First time, 2015, quite late. Uh, so to answer your question, Vale, 
this is the, the primary way in which international organizations deal with, by writing down what they have to do. Then the question if they actually do what they write down, well, that is another story. And, uh, but from my little experience, I saw that um, the, these multilateral processes um, marked by cooperation, uh, diplomacy, are very important because uh, we have something written down, uh, but at the end, th th which is very important, and these organizations help to steer the process, to, to keep this, uh, these issues up on the agenda. But at the end of the day, are very, very slow processes uh, with a lot of, indeed, um, uh, cooperation and diplomatic issues going on. So I saw a very slow process, and I felt that maybe the most impact can be done on a local level. Uh, so yeah, slow. And um, is food in any part like mentioned within this uh, these treaties or disagreements? Does it have a, a role? Yeah, I mean it's a important question because um, agriculture and food is impacted by climate change. So we know that the, the rise in temperature creates uh, food loss, creates a problem of food security, biodiversity loss, droughts and floods, so problems so to growing food. On the other end, also agriculture, so the agricultural sector is a contributor to climate change. So there is a two-way two -way process. If we imagine the, the industries that impact climate change, uh, the impact um, global warming, agriculture, and food uh, um, stems for 24%. So if, if we look, for example, at the transportation, it's only 14%, so it has a big impact. But uh, if we look at, the, at these treaties that I just mentioned you, uh, there is no specific uh, instrument for food and agriculture. There is only a mention that, yes, this is also a sector that needs to be tackled, but is, there is nothing more. We know there is the FAO, the Food and Agriculture Organization, that does its part. But uh, in these big treaties that tackle climate change, food is something that they seem to have forgotten. Uh, there is not a specific mention. Uh, there are some then, then more specific uh, instruments. There is a, um, an agreement that was made in 2017. But again, it's a piece of paper to say, OK, let's gather information on food and agriculture. Let's let's produce knowledge in this. But as I said before, it looks like uh, food and agriculture is not on top of the agenda. And it's a problem since there is this two-way impact. Climate change is impacting agriculture, but agriculture impacts climate change. So there is a lot of work to do, I think. <coughs> and it's been such a dramatic year with flooding in Pakistan, and you know, the record-breaking temperatures in India, drought across Europe as well. Exactly, and this uh, makes you think. Um, also, we know with the, with the war in Ukraine, also the problems with the, with wheat, for example, and everyone is speaking about uh, food security. Uh, but if we want to come up with a word that we are seeing a lot around Terra Madre, which is regeneration, agriculture is impacting climate change. But if we change the way in which we cultivate, we have a more regenerative approach to agriculture. We actually wouldn't have this. Uh, food security pro problems and we could actually uh, make this two-way process beneficial for climate but also for agriculture so it would just need a change in the way we c 
cultivate, uh, wouldn't need a reduction in, uh, we, we don't need to cultivate less. We just, do, we just need to do it differently. And do you think food is, and possibly because of the things we've just listed, mm -hmm. food is going up the agenda? Because <clears throat> I was certainly surprised and disappointed that at the last COP, there was very little evidence mm -hmm. that food was a subject of importance yeah. in, the, in the big scheme of things. Yeah, uh, absolutely. As I said before, it looks like they forgot about food, the food system. In the months that I was an intern at the UNFCCC, I never heard once mentioning food, uh, not even with the people that I was uh, with the division of the executive secretary. So the, it was Patricia Spinoza, which is a diplomat, uh, and she's the, she was the chair until some months ago. She now retired. Never heard in their meeting mentioning one uh, food. Uh, have you figured out why? <laughs> it's so, I mean, obviously we're here at Terra Madre. Yeah. We're all so engaged. Yeah. Uh, but I'm, just, I'm curious as to what is it that, that global institutional level yeah. that, that means food is in the background? Yeah, I think they're much concerned with fossil fuels and uh, how with that industry first. So also the major stakeholders and multinationals are that have the power um, also in the multilateral processes of climate change are the fossil fuels companies. And also agriculture, there, has a lot, there are a lot of multinationals that have power, but also a lot of um, small producers who don't, who don't have a voice, I think. So I think the problem is that they are m very much focused on, rightfully also, on trying to tackle the issue of climate change by reducing the dependencies on fossil fuels, because there, there is where money is and where the power is. I think this is my how we read things now. Yeah, but fossil fuels are also used in agriculture, exactly. so yeah. Still, no mention of food. And um, getting back to the grassroots level, Nora, um, how do you? Um, what are the instruments that uh, you can offer, for example, with snow change? To, to tackle climate change? Mm, yeah, so so we're trying to um, affect the land use. So so we have um, a landscape restoration program called Landscape Rewilding. Um, so maybe as a little bit of background um, to the context of Finland. So many people probably know that we have a lot of forests, lakes, rivers, and then um, peatlands. Um, I don't know if if everyone knows what a, what a peatland is, but they are very old, um, uh, flat, uh, moist, wet uh, lands with a lot of moss. In, at this time of the year, the mosses are in different colors, red, um, green, um, purple, brown. Um, and they, they are um, special biodiversity hotspots because you can't find those species anywhere else. And, and also they are gigantic um, carbon sinks. They are more effective carbon sinks than forests, Forests, in fact. So in Finland, um, people might view our country as a, like a green, environmentally, um, um, like a green country, but it's, um, it's not quite true. So, so uh, when it comes to peatlands, the major part of them have been um, either ditched um, for forestry purposes so you're trying to convert a peatland into a forest by planting tree like like um, drying it um, so that you can plant trees and then log them or then 
the peat has been um, extracted for uh, energy uh, production. So you basically take all the vegetation off, dig the peat, um, burn it for energy, and then like the entire ecosystem is is gone. Yeah. So we're trying to to respond to that um, by restoring those peatlands and and restoring them back to um, carbon sinks and biodiversity hotspots. And um, I have one concrete example that I'd like to share. Um, so there's one peatland um, called Linnunsua, close to where I live. Um, it's um, the peatland of birds. So there used to be a lot of birds. And when the peat mining company came in the 80s and started extracting peat, um, there were only two, two bird, bird species left. And then what happened was that in 2010, a local fisherman noticed that there were dead fish uh, in the nearby river. And people started wondering what's going on. They were like, maybe it's something to do with the peat mine. But the authorities didn't really want to pay attention. But then the same thing happened in 2011. And then the local communities of the two villages of Selki and Alavi, and then Snow Change decided that, okay, like this can't go on, we have to do something. So they started a, a huge campaign and then actually found out that, okay, well, the fish died because of acidic discharges from from the peat mine. So then after like a long battle, the, the peat mining ended and then um, Snow Change managed to purchase the land with a big loan and start the restoration process. So that happened years ago, a little bit more than 10 years ago. And then after those long restoration process, um, we now have like a recovering um, peatland. Well, it's not a peatland, um, or I mean, it's a peatland, but it's um, it's not close to anywhere. Like throughout our lifetime, it won't be what it was, but it's a wetland um, and there's now been um, detected 196 bird species, which is a huge difference to the two bird species that there were before. And it's returning into a carbon sink. Like we actually measure the the carbon emissions, so, so it's recovering. Because when you have a peat mining site, it's like a, it's emitting carbon every day, and then now it's kind of recovering. And how how did Snow Change begin, and and what did it become in terms of scale? Mm, yeah, so it, it started tw more than twenty years ago um, from a from a student project um, in Finland. Um, so there was a was a group of people, a group of students that were worried about climate change, and then they they thought that maybe we should look back to the to the elders and their knowledge to to uh, collect uh, the traditional knowledge like and the um, observations of, of climate change, and then um, it was like a collaboration between uh, a university in Russia and a university in uh, in Canada. So then they they started these exchange um, visits. To different communities and then it kind of like grew from there so that uh, more and more communities wanted to be involved and then it's kind of um, became a network of, um, of indigenous and traditional communities. And, and who, who or what did it need to focus its efforts on? 
Was it local or regional government or national government? Um, it's no change to, to, to stop the extraction of the peat. Mm, yeah. yeah who, who did it need to focus its campaigning efforts on? Yeah, well, um, the media was very much involved. So they got a lot of media attention. So then there was public pressure. And then, um, so in the end, um, the peat mining company said like, okay, okay, um, we give up. Um, but of course there were the, like the environmental authorities um, that were. So public awareness was really, really important. Yes. Yeah. yes. And how does the restoration process work? So what, what did you do exactly? So it was like a bunch of meetings with the villagers um, to kind of see what should be done. And then then because it's also together with the with the river, they were, for example, um, where have the fish been spawning? Like could we restore these spawning areas so that the fish have healthier habitats? And then also like to make to have all all the hopes of the people secured so that for example there's local hunters so they can still hunt certain species there and everyone can use it as a recreational area so that everyone in the community knows what's going on and it's done so that like everyone agrees that that it's a good thing and we and then we have our like um, hydrology specialist who who knows like um, very well how, how water works and like he's in charge of the actual like physical like restoration but of course not, it's not like in its in its original state kind of because it's like a wetland and not like a, a peatland with like moss now because because you can't restore that and uh, but you also mentioned that of course it's uh, really important to um, uh, to involve local communities to work with uh, indigenous communities so um, how do you collect like local knowledge and how do you exchange this also within snow change and outside the organization? Yeah, um, well, so the collection process happens like um, by interviewing and of course the people are always like no one is forced to be, in, be interviewed, but it's always like according to their consent and then um, all the tapes are, are stored and then uh, like written and then um, there's been a book that has been published uh, like from the Eastern Sami, Sami knowledge um, and then but about sharing the knowledge it's well I mean it depends on the case and it depends whether the people want it to be shared or not if it's uh, like kind of Mm, sensitive, sensitive information or not, but um, yeah, depending on the case. And do you have any examples, or has it ever happened that like local knowledge has been useful, for example, for an international campaign or an international purpose? Yeah. But I think um, extraction of peat around the world, it, I mean, certainly in part other parts of Europe, so it does serve as a good example really of the of how destructive some of these industries can be and perhaps not to um, restore it completely but at least find uh, kind of, you know, create an environment in, in more greater harmony with nature so it's great to have as an example yeah and I mean it's the first time that in Finland a community managed 
to stop a peat mining company and the first time. If it can be done once, it can be done yeah, again in, yeah, uh, in other parts of the world. Yeah. Yeah. And the first time that a community-led restoration project started where it was actually from, from the local community that it started. So, so it's quite a, like a special case, at least in the Finnish context. And, um, and Ali, from, uh, from the experience that you, that you had, have you seen that on an international perspective also grassroots initiatives or local indigenous knowledge is somehow taken into consideration? I would say it's somehow taken into consideration in the sense that, of course, like everything, uh, international organizations try to give a space to more to indigenous people, to indigenous community, uh, also because it, I mean, it's known that it's super, it's super important and indigenous knowledge actually could be the key to solving some problems. So, for example, um, during a game, during my internship, uh, I, um, I joined a meeting with, uh, uh, with the executive secretary, which was uh, listening uh, young people from all over the world, from uh, indigenous community. And I didn't expect that, so it was a pleasant surprise that uh, actually she took the time to listen to those people. Um, then I don't know uh, after that conversation when af what actually could be done, or what actually uh, besides having a moment to listen to people, which is important. But then I don't actually know if action is taken, and I don't think so. Also, something that is uh, usually said at COP, at the Conference of the Parties, which is the main conference of these uh, agreements on climate change, that um, a seat at the table should be granted to more indigenous people but also uh, to, to people to, to the civil society because these negotiating tables are um, are full of experts of course are full of people from the governments and ministries but if uh, a seat of the ta one more seat at this table would be granted to people that actually live in the contexts uh, maybe some mm, solutions uh, would be found also in a more quicker way, like more quickly, uh, because sometimes they negotiate days and days because they cannot find the solutions on the problems. But if you actually ask to someone that is living in those conditions, I think maybe you can find an answer quicker. Um, so yes, it's maybe more a facade, let's say, a way of dealing with uh, also indigenous culture. Um. Because well, th there are a few, I, I guess, legal, um, yeah, there's very little kind of legal jeopardy, really, for these organizations to listen or not. Exactly. Uh, yeah. Indeed. Uh, I mean, they are the organization. They have to lead the process, and they have to do it. So if they do it involving or not civil society, indigenous people, um, yeah, it's up to them. And uh, if they just uh, bring forward the process by listening to themselves, to their own ministry, to their own... I'm gonna say the white supremacy people because at the end of the day, this is it. Uh, yeah, no one is actually gonna tell them they they're not there. They are not doing their job because they are doing it. Yeah. yeah. So it's another, it's another form of greenwashing, but by having these conversations, uh, I'm just wondering. I mean, are there any concrete examples in which those conversations, in some way, have influenced I mean, policy and a direction? I think, 
I, I cannot give you a concrete example, but if we look, for example, at the at the COP, many speeches are given. And there are many young acti act activists that give speeches, also many activists, indigenous activists, that go there and give a speech. They are super inspirational, and I think those those speeches are the most moving. And I don't understand how people don't just stand up and run to to find solution because if you listen to those words, at least I'm full of um, of like. Um, yeah, or, or they, they also transmit your passion for, for what you should do. But we know that then the process doesn't go that way, so. But these things are very hard to measure, aren't they? Because, yeah. it, as you say, it could be the transmission of an idea, of information, but also the passion. And slowly, if that does find its way around the world and people become engaged in more subtle ways, it might be a long-term impact, yeah. but slowly, slowly, consciousness changes and the way what people expect from their governments or politicians changes as well. So it's hard to measure, it's okay. but I'm convinced it, it really is important yeah, that those absolutely. young absolutely. people uh, send this message. Absolutely. Yeah. I agree. And yes, of course, it's super important. It would be nice to see more action taken after that. Yeah. But mm -hmm. uh, also the Fridays for Future movement and all the young people that uh, that protest, that keep protesting, that's, uh, this is absolutely crucial because it keeps the it reminds people that we have to do something. Uh, also, when the, the climate um, crisis topic goes down on the agenda, if these people keep talking and keep protesting, it's, it's uh, fundamental. So if we could bring a message from the Slopodius Network to the next COP, to the COP27, what would be our message? Well, a uh, very hard task. <laughs> uh, I think the message is to keep engaging with your I think with the local community with uh, people that actually want to take action uh, in your local network because if we it's such an overwhelming crisis uh, gives you overwhelming feeling also I think that us young people or citizens um, need to find the local com the community on on our local uh, level uh, to uplift ourselves and uh, to find a reason to to engage in this crisis, so for me it would be finding your local community and do what you can in at your local level, because we cannot really do something at the big international level because this we see these processes here are also a bit blocked are very high level, um, and also keep studying, keep learning, and uh, really understand that your choices have an impact and think about the impact they have. Let's use our right to vote also to steer the conversation and uh, say what we want through our possibility to vote. Nora, do you also have some any recommendation either for the world leaders attending COP27 or also for uh, uh, each individual that is coming to Terra Mother, that is listening to our podcast, what can we do? Yeah, um, well, for the for the COP, for the world leaders, I would say that listen to indigenous peoples and also give power to indigenous peoples, like let them make decisions over their natural resources, because they've, they're the only ones who have been living without destroying nature for millennia. So there must be something. And I feel like they have the wisdom that the Western world has lost because um, we're so um, fixed with like um, technology and intelligence, but actually what we need is wisdom, and wisdom is in nature. So that's 
that's that's the message for the for the leaders and then for the individuals um, I personally think that we should try to move from the from the individual to to communities because in the world of today I think we're so focused on what the individual can done like by themselves so basically the two options that we are given like the power we are given to is is that we can act as consumers or then we can we can vote and of course they are both important but but there's actually no real power power in that because when you talk about food for example the power is with the agri agribusiness and and with the retailers and and the state so there's very little in if like whether we we buy why this or that so then my advice or i don't know if it's a, it's an advice but maybe to 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 get together with with people and start thinking like how how can we change the structures and patterns of our local food um, consumption or distribution um, so that many people would together kind of take action and and like um, kind of try to to grab the power over the like the food food system like for example um, what community supported agriculture or community supported fisheries how how people are doing doing them so i would say like yeah like a little bit like get together um and act together and then like instead of the individual focus on like um, um systemic change can i just ask one final question for me really which is that there's so many different sets of crises underway at the moment. So we've come out of the pandemic, we're still recovering from the pandemic, <clears throat> the energy crisis, cost of living crisis, war in Ukraine. Do you think that takes us into a situation where positive change is more likely because we need to see things so differently? Or actually, does it mean that the voices that need to be heard Will, will not be heard because I guess we are in this crisis mode. Governments are in crisis mode. So, for example, in Finland, you know, with the border with, with Russia, perhaps if that was happening now, um, Snow Challenge wouldn't have, would not have been heard because so much attention would have been placed on the immediate crisis. And so I'm just wondering what your thoughts are on where we are right now, the amount of I guess political energy that's being expended on these different crises is—is that—is that an opportunity for change, or a risk that some of this hard work is going to fall on deaf ears? Yeah, well, of course, it's a—it's a very challenging time. For example, to to try to advocate for for these things, like uh, on, for example, national or international levels, when when people are focused on on. And the crisis, but I also think that well, here we are um, living the the crisis. I I mean I think that what we will experience will be a crisis after a crisis after a crisis. Even though it's not something you want to want to say out loud, but but I think so, and that's why I think that people um, should focus on their like local environment, the local level, to see what can come come from there. Like yeah, and, and in a way, it makes local like local action even more important. Yeah, um, exactly. 
Um, I have to say that I'm a bit scared of this question because the moment we are living again, I'm talking about Italy, uh, it's a very particular moment because I thought after the pandemic, we had also thanks to the European funds, uh, a big chance of really recovering, but not only recovering the economy that went down because of the pandemic, but really investing those money in the, in the green transition. Uh, and I so hope, uh, but then our government fell and now again we are voting and uh, it looks like the far right is gonna take the government and really the climate at least uh, issue is not on the agenda at all. So I had some hope, I'm really scared now, but I think that um, we, we cannot uh, stop here. We have a big opportunity. We still have those European funds uh, because without funding, you don't go anywhere. Uh, we I hope that the organization that are gonna receive those funds are really gonna um, achieve the, the targets that they need to achieve. We have some conditionality towards the European Union, so we need really to achieve something. So I have hope because I have to have it. Uh, on the other side, yes, I agree that we're gonna experience a crisis after a crisis. Uh, but we really have to put our sleeves up. Mm, yeah, and again, <laughs> local action becomes so, yes. so important, even just to help us have a sense of hope and yes. optimism. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And talking about uh, local action and individual action, tomorrow morning at 10 a.m., we we're going to record another episode of the Sfin podcast here at Terra Madre, and we're really going to talk about how individual choices affect positively or negatively the food system so i invite everyone to tune in if you are connecting from far away or to pass by if you are here in terra madre and thank you so much girls thank you so much ariana lavazin and nora osari for being here and for giving us this grassroots perspective and this global perspective it was really really nice and also because you're very young and i'm always super happy to see that young people really take action and give examples uh, also to, to the others. Thank you so much, Dan Saladino. Thank you. Uh, fascinating hearing this, being involved in this conversation. So thank you. And then uh, see you in the next episode of the Sphin podcast. Mm-hmm.